Got a lot to cover. Let's jump in. Verse 1 says this, Then I saw, this is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' inner circle of three, who sees another beast. It says, Then I saw another beast. So this isn't the first beast. This is the second one. And if you remember, if you've been with us for a little while in Revelation 12, uh, we're introduced to the great red dragon, it says, in verse 3 of Revelation 12. That great red dragon is Satan. And then here in Revelation 13, we are introduced to two beasts, the first and the second beast, who carry out Satan's work. They both are under the authority of this great red dragon who is said to be Satan in Revelation 12. So, so some, in, some see in these three beings, the great red dragon and the two beasts, they see sort of an imitation trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit there. Some see in this sort of an imitation trinity a way that Satan sort of mocks God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now the word for beast here is is most simply translated four-legged animal. (laughs) Four-legged animal. I was thinking this whole week about my dog. It's a beast. I call it a beast all the time, in fact. I call penny a beast more than I do penny actually the word here for beast is most simply translated four-legged animal which frankly doesn't sound so bad but as you'll see by the surrounding context which we'll explain as we continue to go along here I think that John's vision here in verses 11 through 18 is is purposely less scary sounding than the previous two beasts the dragon and the beast. This is important, and I, and I want you to see sort of the relatively not scary nature of this third beast, at least on the outside, at least by appearances. This is important for us. Keep reading verse 1. It says, The beast is seen by John as rising out of the earth. Uh, what you need to know about this is simply that the, this beast is, I believe, figuratively born of the earth, meaning its activity is earthbound, where it carries out its mission, where activity by humans happens on earth. It doesn't mean it's not a spiritual being, but simply that it carries out its work on earth and in an earthly manner. Now, this next phrase is super important because it sets the tone for this whole passage. It's the phrase where John says it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. The word translated in in my Bible as and, A-N-D, is the Greek word kai, K-A-I. Now, kai means two things. It means and, but it also means but. So Scott, you're saying it means and and not and. Yes, I'm saying it means and and not and, depending on the surrounding context of the word. So it's either and or but. And here in Revelation 13.11, because of the surrounding context, the meaning is but, B-U-T. So if you're a circler or an underliner, you may want to circle that word and, and and put also can mean but. In fact, about half of the modern Bible translations today that are dependable translations uh, use the word but instead of and. So when we're reading this phrase, we get this meaning. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. 
This is significant because it sets the tone for the whole passage and what's going on here. So what we're saying by making this point, and this is true even if you want to translate it and, because there's enough context to make this point. What we're saying by making this point is that it looks innocent like a nice little lamb with only two horns. But despite what it looks like, it speaks like a dragon. It may look kind and gentle on the surface, but it speaks like a monster. Like a dragon. And I don't think the point here is that it speaks loudly or violently like a dragon, but that the content of what it says is dragon-like. What comes out of this lamb on the outside's mouth is the content of a monster. Now, if you remember, the first beast spoke blasphemies. I think the word blasphemy is used about four times in uh, just a few verses there in the, the first part of verse uh, of chapter 13. The first beast spoke blasphemies, but the difference here is that this beast, it looks innocent. So don't miss this. The picture being painted here is one where it looks nice and gentle, but the stuff coming out of its mouth is actually poison and lies. It'd be like having a car with like a Ferrari body, but a Ford Fiesta engine on the inside. It looks good on the outside, but it's actually a fake. It's a counterfeit John is setting us up here to show us in this passage what a false prophet looks like. So that you will know now and you will know later. John is setting us up here to, to show us what a false prophet looks like. And the tricky thing is, is that this beast looks like a lamb. That's the thing about prophets that are false. They look good at first, but really they are evil. Jesus himself calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. Matthew 7.15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They come to you, they present themselves in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. This is why we have to be careful, because their power lies in the fact that they seem safe. Their power lies in the fact that they seem safe. Keep reading verse 12. This is how it uses its counterfeit power. This is how it uses its power. It says it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. That phrase there, in its presence, is sort of an idiomatic phrase. It's an idiomatic expression that means that the first beast is sort of standing by, watching over, and approving everything that this second beast is doing. And that's kind of the idea here. The second beast does the bidding of the first beast who did the bidding of the dragon. So this beast, like the first beast, is actually acting as an agent of the evil one who exercises its authority on earth. We see this straight from the text, the next phrase, where we see how it wields wields its power. Look at this. It says, it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, the the counterfeit beast looks good on the outside because its purpose 
is to get people to worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. That's part of why it looks good on the outside. Who's going to worship an ugly beast like the first beast or the red dragon? Nobody. That's why this beast, this second beast, the counterfeit beast, looks good on the outside because its purpose is to get people to worship the first beast. And it says the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. We talked about this a little bit last week. If you'll remember, the first beast uh, has this mortal wound. Uh, but at the same time, it's still alive. It's still like doing things. In other words, even though the death blow was delivered by Christ's death on the cross, the forces of evil are still fighting to the end to take down whomever they can before Jesus' second coming. I think that's what's going on here. It's like D-Day in World War II. What's going on here in Revelation with this mortal wound thing sort of functions in a similar way to D-Day. On Tuesday, uh, June 6th of 1944, the invasion of Normandy was a decisive surge that ensured the Allied victory, but that didn't stop the Axis forces from continuing the fight. In fact, in the Battle of the Bulge, which took place a full six-plus months after D-Day, there were more Americans killed in that battle than any other battle during the entire war. So the Germans were still fighting a losing battle, even though the decisive victory against them, which won the war for us, happened six months prior. Even though the cross dealt the beast a death blow, it has kept on fighting ever since. So this second beast's purpose is to do the same as the first beast, to keep fighting. Its mission is to get people to worship the first beast. And here's how the second beast does this. He's, he's very, very deceptive. Look at verse 13. It says it performs great signs. The false prophet does things that look like they come from God. Jesus said in Mark 13.22, 13.22 of Mark, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10, the coming of the lawless one, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Listen, friends, Scripture is clear that the evil one can do really cool and powerful things. The Bible teaches that the ability to perform signs and wonders is not by itself an indication of divine authority. So don't be hoodwinked by external signs and wonders. Don't be infatuated with what you see on the outside. Don't be infatuated by external signs and wonders that might make a particular ministry seem legitimate. And in how I read Revelation, this isn't just future, this is now and it's in the future. An earthly ministry can seem externally safe 
but it can be very easily manipulated. One of the lessons here is that we are called to be more discerning. More discerning. Lots of flash, lots of fancy, lots of people. Doesn't necessarily mean anything. And the beast, in fact, already knows that. And the beast lives, the reason it lives, is to manipulate that. The question is, do you and I know that? Do we know that great signs and wonders, things on the outside, which can be the exact context within which the truth can be manipulated for the purpose of the beast, don't miss that, the things on the outside, great signs and wonders, can be the exact context within which truth can be manipulated by the beast. The point here is that things can look good on the outside, but on the inside they can be corrupt and led by the evil one. In my mind, think modern-day equivalents like the health, wealth, name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel that is taught by some very popular teachers and speakers I could name out loud that 75% of you would know because you read their books and you listen to their teachings. Think the preacher who teaches no sin, nor repentance, nor judgment in the Bible, but who teaches half-truths about the character and nature of God that are only love and grace. So he can't even bring himself to say things like sin, judgment, and, and, and talk of the need for repentance. That's false prophet. Now, <laughs> I see lots of people who are easily hoodwinked by signs and wonders. But I also see lots of believers who see corruption under every rock. And who likewise don't apply scriptural principles, but human-centered principles by which to decide. And they hardly filter a thing through the Word because they don't search or know the Word, so instead they rely on their own selfish human-based filter of wisdom as their Lord. That's 666 living. We'll talk about that later. Lots of people hardly filter a thing through the Word because they don't know it, they don't search it, and so they rely instead on the easiest thing, which is their own selfish human-based filter of wisdom. Which is why we always say things like, the Lord led me. The Lord leads people, according to them, to all sorts of things that have nothing whatsoever to do with biblical and godly wisdom, but that have everything to do with self and avoiding sanctification. Which is why I'm going to start telling people, well, I feel the Lord has led me to tell, me, tell you that you're selfish. And you're wrong. And you're biblically clueless. And that your basis for living is your human-centered philosophies and not filtered through Scripture. I felt, I felt led, led to say that. So, so, this is certainly an area that takes wisdom because there's little balance and wisdom. Because wisdom isn't just a Jesus and me thing. We believe the silly lie of that in America. Just Jesus and me. That's all I need. 
Wisdom biblically requires a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, in the Word, in prayer, and in connection with the body. It's that last one nobody likes. It's that last one nobody likes. Because it means being held accountable, held accountable to becoming who God made us to be. But that's another sermon series. In basic terms, it seems that there are many who are so easily manipulated and there are also many who refuse God's leading by relying only on themselves. So this requires wisdom because the beast's deception can range from the smallest, most sort of unnoticeable lies that the evil one tells you from day to day to the biggest, most fanciful, most incredible feats of power that any of us has ever seen. The range is that wide of the beast's power. The small little unnoticeable lies that he tells us day to day that we listen to and nod our heads to and give assent to unwittingly to the biggest, most fanciful, most incredible feats of power you've ever seen. Which is why I think this next word, the word even in verse 13 is there. Just like Elijah in the Old Testament, this beast was even... Scripture here is making the point that deceptive signs and waters can get as powerful as even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. This is a a counterfeit feat of power. This is a fake feat of power that is a contrast to Elijah in 1 Kings 18, if you want to look it up later, 1 Kings 18, 38 and 39, where it says this, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The evil one knows what it's doing It can do things that people previously looked at as signs and wonders from God, and they said, the Lord, He is God. He can do many of those things, knowing that some of those same people will see His own signs and say, the beast, He is God. And this doesn't happen in temples and shrines where people come together to worship a beast It happens every day in the people's hearts. This is about turning people's hearts from worship of Almighty God to worship of a fake and a counterfeit God. Keep reading the next couple of verses. 14 and 15, it says, And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives, circle that word deceives because it's huge, it deceives those who dwell on earth. John's interpretation of the vision now explicitly names the beast's purpose to deceive those who dwell on earth. And here's how. By telling them, it says, to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now that it has deceived them, all it has to do is tell them what to do. That's how the evil one works. It speaks lies to us when it has our attention. Verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. And remember what we talked about last week, the end result of the lies of the evil one is always death. It might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Lies always, always result in death. Now because the beast has great power, 
with deceptive signs and wonders. He can simply, he can simply tell his followers to make an image or an idol of the beast. And after the beast does something to get your attention, he diverts that attention toward the first beast and ultimately toward the evil one. And ultimately, you will die without God. Friends, we are all worshipers. We are all worshipers of something. And the evil one knows this. He knows we were created by Almighty God with an inherent desire to worship. John Calvin said we were uh, created as idol-making factories. Now the beast's purpose is to redirect worship intended for God into worship of the evil one. So don't miss this. The evil one wants to do everything that it can to redirect your worship. We could go on and on about what this looks like practically in people's lives. Uh, But let me just list a few particularly effective ways that the beast is already redirecting people's worship from God toward the evil one. What about uh, sex? One One of the beast's greatest tools to pervert something God made for good into something that means that people's attention is diverted from worship of Almighty God to worship of Himself. Did you know that the average age of first exposure to pornography, which is going downward every year, is around 11 years old? And with the advent of smartphones, many believe that that number is going to continue to decrease. The largest consumers of online pornography are between the ages of 12 and 17. This is the work of the evil one. How about the never-ending search for money and security? We are, we are raised from the womb in America to become financially independent and secure. And honestly, there is some real wisdom to this. Proverbs 6, 6 is a cool verse, but the Bible speaks of the wisdom of the ant to secure enough for when it's needed. There's wisdom to that. But, but when one's search for earthly security trumps one's faithfulness to worship and give to God, that's a heart problem because that's about worship of this world. And that's the work of the evil one. How about a local sacred cow? What about sports? It's football time in Tennessee. I don't know if you're aware. If you live under a rock, you may not know. But it's football time in Tennessee. Now, now I get it. I get it. I went to the, uh, the temple called Neyland Stadium last year. Let me point to it. And I get how cool and exciting it is, and I get how much better everyone in the SEC is than everybody else in the whole country, blah, blah, blah. I get it. But seriously, if I hear, if I hear it's football time in Tennessee one more time, I'm, I'm going to scream. Which I know means that some of you have just now branded me a false prophet. But. 
But hear this clearly. It's just a meaningless game with no eternal consequences whatsoever. And you don't have to tell me how serious people are about sports. I'm a soccer fan and I enjoy watching a a good Premier League game every once in a while. Uh, But just recently, a few weeks or a couple months or so ago, a referee was beheaded overseas because of the outcome of a soccer game. Friends, Friends, people worship their sports. They worship their money and security. They worship sex. They worship power and control. They worship self. 666 isn't just about a beast. It's the number of a man. It's the number of human-centered ways of life. And it's much more deceptive. It's much more scary. It's much less able to be discerned. (laughs) In fact, you can't if you're not filtering your life through the Word, through the Holy Spirit, through connection with the body. The evil one is using this second beast, the false prophet, to make us believe in and to follow things that are not true. Let's read on. 16 through 18, it says this. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, nobody is exempt from this danger, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. We'll come back to this important point at length in just a couple minutes. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. I'm not going to be able to unpack this uh, we've got bigger fish to fry than this particular thing about uh, buying and selling. But here, here's my understanding of this. Uh, the false prophet uses the structures of the world, even its economic structures, to impose cultural, worldly, psychological pressure on anyone who does not believe the beast's signs. So, so let me read this quote for you. Uh, this is by uh, a premillennial futurist, by the way, and not from an amillennialist like me. This is about that thing of buying and selling. He says, this is not put into effect all at once. Rather, this will involve the imposition of the standard and then an ongoing day-by-day resistance to the demand as those who refuse to take the mark grow more and more hungry, more and more concerned for the welfare of their families, and more and more uncertain about how they will procure what they need to live. We know from 13.7 that the beast wants to kill Christians. And he says this, But now we are informed that the execution will be a long time in coming rather than happening swiftly. Keep reading verse 18. It says, this calls for wisdom. And, and, and about this, this word, this, I think this situation is about living in a world of false prophets now and when it heats up later on. I don't think this refers to not being able to buy and sell. I think this refers to the whole preceding situation in this passage. It says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast... For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Uh, Now people get all over the map when interpreting this particular uh, verse. And they calculate all manner of possible meanings. Let Let me just read what one commentator said about this. 
Uh, this is Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, if you want to check him up. Uh, prophecy teachers have forced many names to come to 666. Naturally, some 16th century interpreters uh, came up with either the Pope or Martin Luther, depending on which side of the Reformation they stood on. Uh, there's an academic commentator who divides 2520, which is double 1260, which is 42 months, which is time times half in time. An academic commentator divides 2520 into four because of Daniel's four empires, then adds 36 as the square of six to achieve 666. Hitler, of course, can be made to arrive at 666. Among the more creative suggestions of the late 20th century was the view that Ronald Reagan's name implied this number because Ronald, Wilson, Reagan all have six letters. Our current favorite is the allegation of 666 on some international product codes which relates to buying and selling, though those are not yet on the forehead or the hand. Others have suggested the nine-digit social security number or an 18-digit figure, thus... Because of that, one California resident fought in court to prevent his daughter from receiving a social security number for fear it might be the mark of the beast. But the Greek text does not allow us to read 6 plus 6 plus 6, or even half that number, but 666. So if we adapt the rules to make names conform, say multiply 7, add 4, then divide by 3. Anybody confused? If we adapt the rules to make names conform, we can eventually make almost any name we want to suggest come out to 666. In fact, everything from biblical scholars, of course, to scientists, to labor unions, to teenage mutant ninja turtles have all surfaced as candidates for the Antichrist. In fact, cute purple dinosaur ends up as 666. Now, let's go about this methodically. It says in verse 16 that people are marked on the right hand or forehead. They're marked on the right hand or the forehead. We're going to camp out on what this means for a couple minutes because it's important to set up what's going on here. Uh, this mark, it might be a literal mark. It might be an actual mark, but I personally don't think so. That would be too easy to see. It flies in the face of the truly deceptive nature, the almost but not quite true nature of the evil one's ways. And I think Scripture sees this mark as a figurative mark that is true, that is, I'm sorry, that is about whether or not one's life is directed by God's truth. I think Scripture itself sees this as a figurative mark that is about whether one's life is directed by God's truth. Turn to the next verse, chapter 14, verse 1. 14, verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him, 144,000, that's a number representing all of God's people, who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Interestingly, by the way, many who see the mark in Revelation 13 as an actual mark usually don't see it that way in the rest of Scripture, which doesn't make sense to me. Turn backwards in Revelation, a few pages to another passage, Revelation 7, 2 and 3, where we see the same thing. 
Revelation 7, 2 and 3. It says, Then I saw another angel ascending from rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. This is an old uh, seal on a letter or a document that legitimizes the letter or document's identity. That's what a seal is. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now go back a few more pages in Revelation to Revelation 3, verse 12. Revelation 3, 12. It says, The one who conquers... The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. These passages in Revelation, which are contrasted by the mark of the beast, are part of an old Jewish tradition from the Old Testament. Listen to Ezekiel 9.4. You can look that up later if you want to. Ezekiel 9.4. This is the Lord speaking to an angel and telling him to put a mark on the foreheads of those who were faithful to God. Verse 4, Ezekiel 9. The Lord said to him, to the angel, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Listen to Exodus 28. Exodus 28, 36 through 38, if you want to look that up later. Exodus 28, 36-38, where this tradition comes from the temple worship. It says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Perhaps the best Old Testament help with this mark comes from the famous passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 8. Uh, It's a great passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 8. This is where the people of God are told to bind the laws of God on their hands and foreheads as signs of God's authority over what they do, hands, and what they think, head. These are signs of God's authority over what they do, which is why it's the hand, and over what they think, which is why it's the head. Deuteronomy 6, 4-8 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And verse 8, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Some of the Jews took it seriously and they would wear it around their hand and around their forehead. And there would be this little door where they kept the Word of God inside the Scriptures. This beast here, this beast is a parody. A deceptive parody. An almost true, but not really, parody on the absolute truth of God that must be our guide if we are to be conquerors. That's why the beast's number is 666. In Scripture, 7 is the number of completeness and perfection. It's the number reserved for God alone. 
Revelation itself tells us that six is the number of a man. We're told here in Revelation 13.18, it's the number of not quite true wisdom. Human-centered wisdom. Humanism that seems true enough, but isn't really. Human-centered wisdom that is ultimately, most truly, the result of following a beast who leads to worship of the evil one. So this beast initially doesn't look so scary. In fact, a lot of us, a lot of us know that because we have fallen in love with this beast and some of its lies before we knew Christ. On the face of it, it doesn't seem scary. But underneath, as these pictures were being shown in Revelation teach us, spiritual warfare is about the battle for truth. Spiritual warfare is about the battle for truth. That's why wisdom is involved in being aware of false prophecy. Friends, the beast is alive now and wants to devour you. This is why life requires discernment and wisdom. It's the love of God and the truth of His Word that must be our guide in this life. They must be the signs on our hands and on our foreheads, in our actions and in our thoughts, if we are to be aware and discerning. Let's pray together.